T-minus one minute and counting, now in the final minute of the countdown. At T-minus 45 seconds, Gene Cernan will make the final guidance alignment. This is the uh, mark, T-minus 545, and Gene Cernan made that final guidance alignment. That's the last action taken by the crew aboard the space vehicle. Now approaching the half-minute mark, T-minus 33, T-minus 30 seconds and continuing on now, continuing on at the T-minus 26 second mark, T-minus 25. We'll get a final guidance uh, release at the T-minus 17 second mark. T-minus 17, final guidance release. We'll expect engine ignition at 8.9 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition, 2, 1, 0. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff, and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center as the Saturn V is moving off the pad. It has now cleared the tower. Roger, Gino, looking great. Thrust good on all five engines. Okay, babe, it's looking good here. Roll is complete. We are pitching. This is Mission Control, Gene Cernan reporting uh, uh, the launch vehicle, maneuvering to the proper attitude. Everything looking good at this point. 17 is go. Roger, 17, you're go. For the eyes of the world, now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. This is The Space Shot, episode 431. My God, it's full of books. Greetings, everyone. It is 2023, and that means we've officially wrapped up the 50th anniversaries for the Apollo lunar missions. The audio you just heard was from the countdown and launch of Apollo 17. This past December, I was lucky to be able to volunteer at the Cosmosphere's first and last steps gala, which celebrated the 60th anniversary of the Cosmosphere and the 50th for Apollo 17. As always, the Cosmosphere throws a great party, and it was amazing to hear from the Apollo and shuttle astronauts in attendance. Um, I would definitely recommend to check out the Cosmosphere's YouTube for the full audio from that event. I will be sure to link to that in the show notes. Earlier this week, I was also able to give a presentation at the Cosmosphere with Emily Carney and Dave Giles, hosts of the Space and Things podcast. The kickoff for 2023's Coffee at the Cosmo events was a chat about podcasting, space, and more. Um, I'll be sharing the event audio in an episode of the Cosmosphere podcast that's already out, and then we've got a part two that's coming up here soon. Before I talk about all of the books I've been reading over the past few months, uh, let's look at 2023 and what's shaping up to be a crazy busy year for SpaceX. Um... They could very well hit 100 launches by the end of the year, and if the first few weeks of this year are any indication, they've got a good chance of hitting that incredible cadence. A Falcon Heavy lifted off on January 15, 2023, supporting the USS F-67 mission for the U.S. Space Force. After that Falcon Heavy launch, SpaceX sent a GPS satellite and the latest batch of Starlink satellites into orbit. The Starlink satellite launch on Thursday of this uh, past week culminated with the 166, that's 166 landings of an orbital class rocket, which is just completely bonkers. 
If you want more space news, consider checking out my Substack, uh, which I launched a while ago, but I've been actually getting back into it more over the past few weeks. Uh, this week, uh, we just had the the week in space history number three release. Um, check out that email, subscribe to the Substack. There's tons of good links uh, in those articles, so I, I hope you check them out. Through Substack, I'm sharing regular weekly emails that cover space history and news, which will help supplement the podcast episodes that you listen to here. So check out the link in the show notes to subscribe to the free Substack. Um, I, I really am enjoying writing the Substack. It's totally different than doing a podcast, but I'm having a lot of fun so far. Now, for the rest of today's episode, I've got some book reviews from a bunch of books that I read last year. Um, I was hoping to get this episode out last fall, but it has just been yeah, kind of a crazy end to 2022, so it slipped into January here, unfortunately. Um, over the past half year, uh, I've been reading, spending many of my mornings reading for an hour or two before I go to work, and it's helped me out a lot over the past few months. Um, my little sister loved to read, so taking some time to read each morning with her, as it were, um, has helped me out a lot. Uh, this is the first of a new type of episode, one where I'll be talking about the books that I've been reading for fun. Um, thematically, I've been on a Cold War kick, focusing on technology, policy, and history. Um, with these last few books, I've been kind of having an emphasis on aviation, space history, atomic technology, that sort of thing. Um, it's been a lot of fun reading these books. One note about these book review episodes, I'm not just going to give ratings or a number for the review of these books. Um, if I enjoyed a book or found it useful, I'll share my thoughts here. But if I can't get into a book or can't finish it, life is too short to read crappy books. So I'm just not going to read them. Um, so you won't you won't hear about those books in these episodes. If you've got any recommendations for reading, I would love to hear them. Send, uh, send an email to me at john at thespaceshot.com. The first book for today is called Project Orion, the true story of the atomic spaceship by George Dyson, who's the son of the famed physicist Freeman Dyson. George Dyson created a readable and informative look into Project Orion, which was the codename for a nuclear pulse propulsion spaceship that was proposed during the early days of America's space program. The idea of exploding nuclear bombs behind a spaceship to propel it into orbit or between planets sounds crazy, sounds absurd, uh, but it was actually a theory that was explored during the early days of the Cold War. What's fascinating about this is that the theoretical ships using this nuclear pulse propulsion become more efficient as their sizes grew larger and heavier, which is kind of counterintuitive for what you would think these things could do. Um, these massive ships uh, in the studies that Dyson and other physicists did um, ranged from smaller ships at a thousand tons to larger military and civilian versions that could weigh between 4,000 and 10,000 tons. Dyson shared many of the details of these different types of designs, uh, but one that stuck out to me was a military version, the Orion Deep Space Force, that was envisioned as part of a fleet of 20 or more ships orbiting Earth hundreds of miles above the surface, or thousands of miles in some cases, with crews of 20 to 30 people per ship. 
these deep space force ships would have uh, provided an early warning um, against Soviet, uh, like a first strike for a nuclear attack. Obviously, we have satellites that do that kind of work now, so there's no need to have a whole flotilla of ships with 20 to 30 people on it when a satellite can do the same thing. Um, in low Earth orbit. So it's it's a fascinating look at the what if, um, but I doubt the efficacy of some of these designs. I, I would have loved to see something like this fly in the 1950s or 60s, but I just don't... I don't see it ever happening, obviously. Um, there's technical reasons behind that, but also I don't think anyone wants to detonate hundreds of atomic bombs just to get a spacecraft into orbit. Dyson does a great job of laying out the historical development of the program from its inception to eventual cancellation, um, and I really just enjoyed the narrative of the book. And perhaps like the entire idea of this project can be summed up with a quote from Freeman Dyson in a letter to Robert Oppenheimer, who's one of the guys that worked on the atomic bomb. Um, and this was from a letter in 1965 after the program was canceled. Quote, you will perhaps recognize the mixture of technical wisdom and political innocence with which we came to San Diego in 1958, as similar to the Los Alamos of 1943. You had to learn political wisdom by success and we by failure. Often, I do not know whether to be glad or sorry that we escaped the responsibilities of succeeding. Freeman continued that the men who began the project in 1958 aimed to create a propulsion system commensurate with the real size of the task of exploring the solar system at a cost which would be politically acceptable, and they believe they have demonstrated the way to do it. What would have happened to us if the government had given full support to us in 1959, as it did to a similar bunch of amateurs in Los Alamos in 1943? Would we have achieved by now a cheap and rapid transportation system extending all over the solar system, or are we lucky to have our dreams intact? Speaking for myself here personally, um, I think that having dreams intact works for this type of mission. It was a bonkers idea that may have technical merit, um, and I can see maybe using it in space, but never launching from the ground here. My money's on less bombastic, pun intended, methods of propulsion to explore the outer reaches of the solar system. Dyson's book is currently out of print, but used copies can be found on Amazon or through your local library. Next up is The Age of Radiance, The Epic Rise and Dramatic Fall of the Atomic Era by Craig Nelson. So we're going to stay with the atomic theme. Age of Radiance starts out with the history of Marie and Pierre Curie and the groundbreaking work that they and others did in the years after the discovery of radioactive elements. There's the history of the development of peaceful uses of atomic power and then later weapons. The book also looks at the immigration of German scientists to the United States and England. I really enjoyed the look at the brilliant work of the scientists of that era. Uh, one of the quotes that stood out to me was how Enrico Fermi was described by fellow physicist Philip Morrison as, quote, turn every experience into a question. Can you analyze it? If not, you'll learn something. If you can, you'll also want to learn something. To me, this is really the heart of the matter on what any scientist does with their work. Whether or not you think scientists should work on atomic weapons or atomic power or any type of technology or what your views are on these, um, many scientists approach 
these fundamental questions in exactly this way. And I just really enjoyed that little quote. Nelson's book was a really interesting look um, at nuclear history. I am from Colorado, and until I read this book, I've never actually, I'd never actually heard of Yerevan, Colorado. The site was a mining town from the 1930s to the mid-80s. It's now a federal Superfund site, and no traces remain of, of the town. It is completely gone. Um, I did a little bit of digging. There's a website for the town, Yerevan.com, with some personal histories and links. Uh, sadly, a number of links to the website are no longer functional. It's really kind of eerie how the website celebrating the town of Yerevan, Colorado is disappearing from the face of the earth, just like the actual town. Back to the book, it is worth picking up from a library uh, just because the book came out in 2014. So there's a lot of things that have changed in the past eight years. But I think Nelson really f did a fastidious job of laying out the historical information, timelines and context that really give you uh, like an appreciation for most of the history. Recently, many countries like Japan, Germany, France, and others have begun to rethink their turn away from nuclear power. Um, this is especially the case in the light of Russian aggression into Ukraine. Many European countries are beginning to see the benefit of having an always-on and relatively clean form of power to help supplement wind, solar, and geothermal. Germany's phase-out of nuclear power was supposed to be complete by 2022, but it's being delayed. I think I read an article where they're actually going to bring a nuclear reactor back online. Thankfully, European countries also have the Baltic pipe as another source for natural gas. It's really important to realize that in a future that's reliant on computers, electric cars, you know, new things like ChatGTP and AI, we, we are going to need more clean power than ever before in human history. Um, the cost of storing all of the data that we create, there's going to be a bigger push, um, I think, for nuclear power in the next couple decades, just because it is something that is one of the more green technologies available for energy generation. As Nelson shares in the book, nuclear power and nuclear waste are not what we see in The Simpsons, with the lovable and bumbling Homer and his nuclear power. <laughs> uh, nuclear power is really, you know, it's not the, the waste doesn't get buried in trees or at the bottom of a lake by Mr. Burns or Mr. Smithers. There's no, you know, 50 eyed fish swimming around in this pond in Springfield. Um, the process of securing and storing spent fuel is rather boring when you compare it to the fictions that you see in pop culture. One of the other things I appreciated about the book was how Nelson closes with a look at our, quote, two-faced miracle that was discovered by the multitude of scientists that he covers in his book. As Nelson states, it's, quote, time to learn to live with blessed curses. And on that point, I'm inclined to agree. Now, I've got some local for me here in Wichita. Um aviation history uh, with a book called May Day Over Wichita, The Worst Military Aviation Disaster in Kansas History. This book is by D.W. Carter, and it looks at a forgotten and just really tragic crash that happened in Wichita, Kansas, or in January 1965. 
The KC-135 tanker has been in service for decades as America's primary refueling aircraft for the armed forces. The KC-135 um, and Boeing 707 jets were developed from the Boeing 367-80 or Dash 80 in the 1950s. And occasionally you can hear this type of aircraft with thankfully upgraded engines uh, fly over the house here from time to time. In May Day over Wichita, D.W. Carter talks about a KC-135 with the call sign Raggy 42 that crashed into a Wichita neighborhood just a few minutes after takeoff um, and had a full tank of fuel. Um, just a horrific scene. The crash killed all seven of the crew and 23 residents of North Piat Street. I'm actually recording this episode um, just about a week after the 58th anniversary of the crash, which took place on January 16th, 1965. According to Carter, quote, when Kansas Governor William H. Avery arrived at the scene of the crash, he called it the second worst disaster in Kansas in his experience. Avery stated that it was second only to the Udall tornado of May 1955, which killed 80 people. Despite the death toll of the Udall tornado, the Piat Street plane crash was the worst non-natural disaster that Kansas has ever seen, claiming many lives and causing the destruction of part of an entire neighborhood. The final toll taken by the Wichita uh, Fire Department recorded 14 houses were instantly obliterated, with 68 others damaged, 30 vehicles demolished, and 30 people killed, including the airmen. I have visited the park that is now at the site um, of this crash, and it's hard to imagine the horrors that must have been unleashed when a fully fueled KC-135 impacted that street. D.W. Carter did the families and residents of Piat Street and the air crews justice with this book. He really went through you know, looking at the different perspectives, the different histories um, and backgrounds of the people that were affected by this tragedy. It's a fast read. It's only 131 pages, uh, but it is an important look at a piece of aviation history that's not really widely known. Carter acknowledges how this crash isn't as well known as it could be, mainly since the crash impacted a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American at the time. Had the crash impacted, say, the College Hill area, which is just a mile or two away here in Wichita, it would have hit a completely different demographic, and the immediate aftermath of the crash could have been radically different. Um, I'm really glad that Carter wrote this book, um, and it covers an important piece of Wichita history. Next up is Wingless Flight, The Lifting Body Story by R. Dale Reed with Darlene Lister. Uh, R. Dale Reed was an engineer who focused on lifting body aircraft and remotely piloted aircraft for NASA in a career that spanned basically a half century. As a NASA web feature describes, the lifting body program grew out of Reed's confidence that a wingless, low-lift-to-drag aircraft could serve as an orbiting vehicle equipped to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and land safely. This NASA article continues, quote, In the lifting body concept, the entire vehicle becomes a controllable airfoil, eliminating the need for wings. Reed was a prime mover in the development of the prototype lightweight M2F1 lifting body that flew successfully in 1963. The success of the unpowered M2F1 led to the development of a rocket-powered lifting body, like the M2F2 and M2F3, 
the HL-10, and later the Air Force X-24A and X-24B. Reed's lifting body research provided guidance in the design of the space shuttle. So you've got a little bit of background now. Wingless Flight, the, the book looks into the specifics of the work that was done on all of those craft that I mentioned in that quote just a, a moment ago. I've really found Reed's account of the history of these programs fun, definitely not just a dry technical account. The book clocks in at about 200 pages, including a brief appendix and glossary. I picked up a copy at the library here in Wichita, but there is a free PDF copy available through NASA's history office. The history of wingless flight and the men and women that made these flights possible is fascinating, and I, I do recommend that you check it out, especially since the ebook um, will be available in the show notes. Before we talk about the last book of today's episode, I want to tell you about a new line of space-themed jewelry and stickers that I have available online. You can check out Starlight and Gleam, where you'll find something cool for any budget, from a cool three-pack of stickers, um, there's a holographic space shuttle, and then a pair of, uh, it's a glow-in-the-dark lunar module and command module. Um... From, you know everything from stickers like those to a sterling silver space shuttle necklace that I've got. And with Valentine's Day coming up, um, it is the perfect time to order for uh, you know that someone special who wants a space-themed gift. Use the code SUBSTACK for free shipping on all orders. Um, again, that is the code uh, SUBSTACK for free shipping on all orders. And the link to Starlight and Gleam will be in the show notes. And I'd love if you could check it out. And then lastly for today, I read The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World in the 1950s by William Hitchcock. This book was, I think, one of the fav my favorites from last year. It's a look at Eisenhower's legacy starting before World War II and then ending with the years uh, following Eisenhower leaving the office um, as president of the United States, which is just really an incredible journey. It's been said by a lot of historians that Ike was a do-nothing president who would have rather played a round of golf than deal with the rigors of office. Journalists, politicians, historians that were Eisenhower's contemporaries argued that he had no political experience and that his military experience and leadership wouldn't translate well into political office. Hitchcock's painstakingly researched book, uh, done over the course of eight years, presents a compelling view of Eisenhower's legacy. The many journalists, historians, politicians, and world leaders who underestimated Eisenhower did so at their own peril. I think that Hitchcock captured the essence of Eisenhower's legacy. Eisenhower provided thoughtful and steady statesmanship at a time that there was a lot of technological and social change. Sure, Ike had missteps, just like any leader um, or president, but he wasn't a do-nothing president that just sat around and played golf between visits to the hospital. Um, I ended up purchasing a used copy of this book so I could reference it again in the future. Um, the bibliography and research notes are extensive and extremely useful, and I'm looking forward to having this as I dive into this period more. Of all of the books that I've talked about in today's episode, I think I enjoyed this biography of Ike the most. As I've mentioned before, links to all of the books discussed here are in the show notes. Um, send me a message if you've got a recommendation or if you appreciated these recommendations and reviews or if you've got a question, um, john at thespaceshot.com. That is it for this episode of The Space Shot, uh, but be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I would also love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts since reviews help more people find out about the show. 
Um, I've also got a number that you can call or text with questions or comments. You can hit me up at 720-772-7988. Just leave a message or send me a text and I will try to get back to you. Um, You can also connect with the podcast online. You can check out all of the social media links that are in the show notes. Um, Again, please do uh, check out Starlight and Gleam. I would love if you could take a look at uh, all the goodies that I've got on there. Um, And until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.